We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, I'm talking with architecture academic and sustainability specialist, Dr. Kirsty Marte. While Kirsty is not a registered architect, she has been working within architecture for decades with a specialised lens on sustainability. Kirsty recently completed her PhD at the University of Tasmania and titled it The Changing Paradigms of Contemporary Consumerism, Sustainability, Adaptation and Spatial Tactics for Shoppingscapes. She understands acutely what impact she understands acutely what impact consumerism culture has on the environment and this led her to open her own shop in Launceston called the Redress Shop. Let's jump in. All right, Kirsty, thank you so much for joining me today on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And yeah, no worries at all. Thank you so much for for joining me to talk about your journey through architecture and through the sustainable architecture realm. Uh, we know that there's so many different directions and areas that people move in in that space. And so, yeah, we, we know that you did a PhD down at the University of Tasmania and, yeah, you've now moved into sort of the consumerism space of sustainability in the later part of your career. But I think people would love to know about the early parts of your career. So do you want to tell us a little bit about where you worked before you decided to go back to uni to do your PhD? Okay. Well, just very briefly, my first degree was in architecture. So I had a Bachelor of Architecture from UNSW and worked in that field, not really in architecture, more in corporate interiors, actually, and events work. And I worked in Germany for a couple of years. And that's where my passion for sustainability really struck me was when I was working in Germany in the late 80s. And I came back to Australia and decided that we really needed to do something about it. <laughs> so I organised the very first actually sustainable expo in Australia called Made Accountable in Sydney in 1995. And that went pretty well with an organisation called the Society for Responsible Design and was a group of really passionate people also wanting to make a difference through design and sustainability. So, and from that, my career in sustainability and design really took off. After that, I was actually asked to be a research officer at the Centre for Design at RMIT, which was uh, one of the really preeminent research places looking at, at that time, it was called eco-design, you know, the sort of terms mm. have changed over the years. <laughs> so, eco-design and green design. Yep. <laughs> And sustainable uh, and biophilic and everything. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that sort of, that went, that, and I worked at UTS. It wasn't, I wasn't actually based in Melbourne for that. I was based at, in Sydney for that. Then practiced for a number of years around the Green Olympics. So I helped a lot with the work that was going on there and then sort of did more consulting work around sustainability and design and had some pretty big name clients actually, like Westpac and Acor Asia Pacific, Fuji Xerox. So, and that's when I went back to 
well, back to university, but as an academic, I started actually teaching sustainable design part-time as a casual lecturer. And then I ended up being a full-time academic and that was never anything that ever was on my radar that I would ever do. But there you go, <laughs> these things happen. And that's where, to cut a long story short, that's where my I started the PA. I did a master's before that. I did a master's in design Mm. while I was working for the Centre for Design at RMIT and I concentrated on sustainability, obviously, for that. But looking at the start of sustainable design and and organisations who were were starting this, so that was my focus for the Masters. Mm. Yeah, and then I ended up in academia and starting my PhD. (laughs) Again, (laughs) not something that was ever on my radar to do, but I'm really glad that the topic I chose was something that I was really passionate about and something that's you know, led me to where I am today. Yeah, fantastic. And, I mean, that sounds like such a great foundation for becoming an academic in sustainability because you were able to implement sustainable thinking and sustainable design processes on so many different levels. Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. And that's what I absolutely love about sustainable design is that it crosses so many different platforms, so many different systems, so many different design areas as well. Like the people I was working with, engaged with, with the SID, the Society for Responsible Design, was that they came from all discipline oh, discipline areas and they taught me so much about their own disciplines and and the influence of their particular discipline on the environment and it's fascinating and then you meet scientists and you know like it just covers uh social you know people and the the social work you know social element the culture it just crosses everything and that's something that I guess I really really love about it and then when it comes to sustainable teaching or you know teaching sustainability at architectural institutions. How has that also changed now when, when I guess you had to seek out particular institutions to learn it as an area of your special interest? How do you see that now being integrated or implemented at universities in Australia? Really good question. Yeah, because when, you know, when I joined the Society for Responsible Design, internet hadn't even, wasn't a thing, you know. So we had to, you know, get information from magazines and newsletters that we sort of were scurrying from overseas and, you know, all all those sorts of things to really understand what this was. And, and in fact, you know, the, the SRD was one of the first organisations in the world to look at sustainability and design. So we were cutting edge in ourselves, in and of ourselves. And at, at universities then sustainability was... I guess it was not not being taught. It was, you know, it was there were definitely conversations around it. And even when I did my degree in the 80s, you know, there were some definitely some very passionate lecturers around, you know, looking at solar architecture and those things, mm-hmm. which was really fantastic and amazing. And I loved that too. That was really inspiring for me. But sort of later in the 90s, Definitely the conversations were starting to happen, but it was there was also a lot of hesitance from from the institutions. 
we don't need to teach that. It's just a fad. You know, <laughs> was one thing that, you know, came up a lot of times or, you know, we teach that anyway. No, you don't. So, yeah, so there was, and so it sort of grew from that to being very discrete units. So there'd be a sustainability unit, you know, that, that the students could opt to do rather than have to do. And it's grown now. Like I know here at uh, University of Tasmania is that sustainability has become an integral part of everything that they do. So it's gone from we don't need to do it to, to, as a general thing, you know, we don't need to do it to let's make it a discrete unit to now, you know, absolutely embedded in the, in the whole degree. And that's definitely what UTAS are doing down here. And I would say that most of the universities are doing that now. It's sort of much more an embedded topic rather than something that's discrete. Yeah, that's really encouraging. So when it comes to doing a PhD, my understanding is that it's a very long process, even deciding what you're going to write about and choosing <laughs> that specialization. What process did you go through to choose what your PhD was going to be about? That was the hardest thing really for me because I had so many things I wanted <laughs> to do it on when it came to sustainability. It came down to two topics in the end, one was around materials. Like I'd already done quite a bit of research around materials and how interior designers selected materials. And that was really insightful research, actually. And I keep on getting pop-ups, you know, of because I wrote quite a bit about that and papers about that. And I'm still getting pop-ups from people who are, are referencing that work in, and that was 2006 that I wrote that. So wow. it's still really relevant, the work that I did there. So, yeah, so it was, it was materials. And then I kind of thought, at the time, I thought maybe that that had already been covered quite a bit in hindsight that probably wasn't right but and I wasn't sure that I could sustain myself over that time period because I was doing it part-time and it was six years and I thought perhaps over that six-year period I knew it was going to take me a minimum of six years to do it ended up taking me nearly 10 but anyway so I wasn't sure if I could sustain that over the six years and also I wasn't sure if the because the research in the materials side of things was growing really quickly and so I then my other passion was around consumerism and the relationship between consumerism and the built environment and that was a very new topic like there was at the time the only work that was actually being done with that type of connection was the actual building itself and making, you know, the supermarket or whatever it was, you know, greener in its form and and structure and energy consumption and that sort of thing. But no one was really looking. And I did, I actually travelled, after I decided to do that, I then took myself overseas paying for it myself. It wasn't anything paid by, by the university to do the research side of it. But I took myself on a whirlwind world trip where I went to, oh, now I can't remember, but it was sometimes I was actually in three 
I covered three different countries in like three different days sort of thing. Oh, my gosh. So wow. it was really full on. So I started in Western America, went across America, then went across to the UK and then across to Europe. I didn't actually get to Asia in that on that trip. And just, you know, really trying to find out what was going on in this area and what was going on was very separate. It was was either the building envelope and looking at that or it was looking at the product in the retail store, in the retail area itself. So, yeah. Yeah, wow. <laughs> okay, so so once you settled on consumerism, yeah, what did you start to discover once you started to actually do the the real nuts and bolts of the research? How is consumerism impacting architecture? Okay, so the reason that I chose consumerism in the first place was because I recognised that in order for us to have a sustainable future, we absolutely, and this is not something that I've come up with, but we absolutely need to do something about consumption and consumerism because all roads lead back to that. You know, if we look at all the stuff that's going on in the world that's negative from an environmental point of view, most often it leads back to that. So, but what I recognised too was that the places where we consume (laughs) are not doing anything to tell us to reduce our consumption. They're doing everything to tell us to increase our consumption. All the design of our shopping centres, our retail stores, everywhere that we consume, they're wanting us to consume more. In fact, you know, they give us bonuses for consuming more. You know, they're always enticing us to consume more. And yet we can't keep doing that if we want a sustainable future. So it just that just seemed to be a nonsense that we would want one thing while we do another. And the research was also showing me that even if we design these beautiful green products and there are some you know gorgeous you know environmentally sustainable socially sustainable products that are are currently and were then on the market but if we still consume at that rate then we're still not going to get to where we want to be so what i was really interested in was that connection between the product the space that we're actually consuming in, so that the space of trade and our behaviour within that space because the dominant paradigm, which is still the dominant paradigm, nothing much has changed, is that whether you want to buy a pencil or you buy a car, it's exactly the same. You walk into the retail space, you select what you want, you hand over the money and you walk out with it. And that is the same action, the same activity, pretty much wherever you go. The only places where that starts to change, and this is what was really starting to then influence my thinking, and I did go to a lot of these places when I was doing my traveling as well, are marketplaces. So, you know, your farmer's market, you know, the craft market, those places actually starts to change that behavior. And what I noticed was that, and from research that other people had done, was that when, say, a farmer's market, people were asked, you know, why do you go to the farmer's market? And what most people would say is, oh, people go to the farmer's market because of the gorgeous food. That's why they go. Well, actually, no, they don't. They go to this farmer's market for the social interaction. 
It's the social aspect that they're interested in, as well as the food, obviously, but it's the social thing that's most important to them. So the idea that they can talk to the person who's selling them the food or the craft and they can ask them about it and they can say, how did you make that? Or, you know, how did you grow that? Or whatever it might be. And there's a conversation that starts to happen and that slows the whole transaction down. And people learn from that and they interact with each other and they might actually make a different decision about something because they've told them something else about it that they wouldn't know if they went into a supermarket and picked it off the shelf and maybe read the packaging, you know. So that I became really fascinated in and that was the thing that really started to move forward my research yeah influence your research yeah really started to influence it and and how to how to make a difference you know that's where the difference was that actual interaction the the way that we consume the way that we trade in our retail spaces that is the thing that really starts to change behavior not the product itself it's that action that activity that that's the thing that that starts to change that behavior yeah and i guess on that sort of consumer side of architecture and how we can have a lower impact on the planet and and the production of carbon uh, as architecture both in it during its construction but then also in its operational footprint it accounts for 40 percent of the carbon produced in the world you know a lot of people say well a great place to start is to reduce the size of your building is i guess is that something that you started to factor in with your research did you start to look at retail design and how that was sort of driving more consumerism on on a large scale yeah that's right that's exactly right so i actually did start looking at the building envelope and looking at yeah, the footprint of it, the energy consumption of them, you know, like how they were built. Are these like the really big, built, the like large shopping centres or is this all the varieties of shopping centres? Variety, yeah. Yeah, yeah wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's where it kind of started. But my realisation was, well, yeah, these buildings can do all. And I was looking at all sorts of things, you know, like how some shopping centres were, you know, and could and some are, you know, collecting all the water off their roofs and then using that water to supply the local community and things like that. So, you know, all of those things the buildings themselves can do, which is great. Like, don't get me wrong, like it's fantastic. But if you look at what's actually happening inside the building, Whatever we do to the outside of the building is going to make a drop of difference to a tiny drop of difference to what's happening on the inside of the building with the rate of consumption that we do. And so I just thought, well, that's not going to make any difference. I want to make, you know, I want my research to make, to sort of draw people's attention to other things, to other aspects of architecture that I think can remain quite hidden, you know, because as designers, we're used to, I think, taking briefs from people who are really only working in the paradigm that they know. And that paradigm, you know, is a paradigm of retail consumption where we want everything, we want to be able to sell more and more and more. 
That, I love the title of your PhD, The Changing Paradigms of Contemporary Consumerism, <laughs> Sustainability, Adaptation and Spatial Tactics for Shopping Scapes. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's, yeah, thinking about retail as a paradigm for consumerism, yeah, that's a really powerful image really because it's, it's, all, in, it's all consuming, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, exactly. So if we think about the spaces that we're designing, that can actually not only the building itself being, you know, beautiful and sustainable in its, you know, structure and giving to the community and, and you know, being regenerative in its design. But if we also think about the design of the retail scape, the shopping scape, as being a scape that in itself actually allows agency in that realm to allow different forms of trade, then we're really starting to make a difference because you could let your mind really go, you know, to all sorts of places then. And and they can be of any scale too. Yeah. Do you want to give us some examples of, of the different forms that this trade can take? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I was looking at while I was doing this was why does retail actually have to only be contained within a shopping centre or a precinct or, a, you know, a high street or whatever it might be? And I was also thinking about the fact that, you know, cars and the way we use cars is going to change in the future. And there's quite a bit of research already discussing, you know, the obsolescence of garages, you know, that because we might be, you know, sharing cars and, and hiring cars much more than we would be owning cars or private transport may might not be called a car anymore. So, so these spaces can then be used for different things and why can't they be used as a space of trade? And one of the things that I was looking at as an example was the collection. And the other thing I was really co not concerned about but I thought was really important was to that retail is on itself, the physical retail spaces anyway, are local. And so by really bringing that together, like um, making the, the local side of it is really important. So like making products locally? Yeah. So, yeah. So making products locally and that can be, again, of any scale. So then I was thinking, okay, so garage and locally made, you know, crafts and things obviously is an obvious one. But if we think sort of bigger and then I was thinking, well, if we actually collect our waste locally too and actually do something with our waste locally, that's an option. So say someone has this spare garage, they want to collect the plastic bottles just maybe in their street, you know, from everyone in their street. And they have a machine in their garage that, and these thing, machines exist, this is not make-believe, this is machines exist and some of the universities have them, where you take the plastic bottles, you melt them down, and then you make the 3D filament for your 3D printers. And then so that person could then sell this 3D print or give it away, like whatever they want to do, you know, to then back to the street, you know, to for them to, you know, use in their 3D printers, for example. So it can be something as small as that, or it could be something that was much more on a community basis. So clothing, for example, you could actually set up a space 
where the whole sort of cycle of clothing was in one place. So it became a place where you brought your unused clothes to either sell at a market as secondhand, to exchange with other people. There's a laundry there for it to be cleaned and laundered, you know, community laundry. There's, you know, repair people there to repair the the clothing. You know, there's a higher place so that the whole sort of, it could be if you imagine sort of like a, a traditional department store, but instead of the department store just selling all of these things, the department store is actually made up of all these different activities that are allowing clothing to be continuously exchanged and and rearranged and you know, all of those sorts of things. Yeah, it's kind of like a cradle to cradle system or approach, I guess, where where something doesn't just become obsolete because you no longer want to own it no. and you're just going to chuck it in the bin. Yeah, can actually have another life moving forward and I guess it's sort of trying to address some of the problems with fast fashion or fast furniture yeah yeah where, yeah. where basically it's made and the once you're no longer happy with it it just goes in landfill yeah, um, yeah, yeah and so is that some of the thinking behind the redress shop that you've established after you finished all of your your yeah, research in your PhD? yeah 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 it is so one of the and the, the redress hub has definitely come from my PhD. And while I was doing the PhD, I was testing these ideas of alternative modes of of trade. And so before I sort of talk about the redress hub, I think I need to talk about the bye-bye shop, which was this this pop-up shop that I did for just a week here in Launceston. And it was, as I said, to test these ideas. There was no money exchanged at all, so but there were four different four main things that I was doing there. So one was a a swap shop. So people could come in and swap anything for anything. So if you came in with a bike because you'd, you know, done something to your legs or whatever might have happened, you couldn't use the bike anymore, but it meant that you could read a lot more books. You could swap your bike for for books, you know, like whatever. It was about what you valued not the monetary value of the of the object and i think that was that's something else that as a society i think we really need to to get a much better hold on you know for, especially about sustainability that it's not a monetary but there's a lot of other values that we need to be placing on what we buy and purchase so that was the swap shop oh and the other thing that happened in the swap shop was when people brought in their item I gave them a card, a pre-sort of printed card, and on the card they had to say why they had the object in the first place, were they given it or did they buy it, an interesting story about it and why they were now rejecting it, you know, like why they wanted to swap it. And so people had these amazing stories that they were telling, you know, like about their objects and the people who came into the buy-buy shop so many of them weren't actually looking at the object. They were looking at the little stories that, you know, all these <laughs> objects are provided with them. And there are a lot of stories that I can tell you about those incidences, you know, with those little stories. So that was the swap shop. Another one was a repair cafe, so or repair deli, I think we ended up calling it. So that was where people could come in and learn how to repair the things. So we had someone there tutoring them. So it was like jewelry and sewing machines and bikes oh, and wow. you know anything that they 
you know, we sort of set up these little times for people to come in and get their things repaired. Then the other one was, I can't remember the term we called it, but it was about making. So it was about making things. And that was all about valuing. So repair was obviously valuing the product and knowing that you could actually keep it going through repair. And then the remaking one was about understanding what actually goes into making a product because when we go into somewhere we buy it we have no understanding of you know the manufacturing or the man made hours or whatever it is to actually make something so again just sort of slowing things down and then the last one was about storytelling and that came about because one of the reasons we actually discard our products is because of that thing called retail therapy, you know, where <laughs> we're not feeling that great and we go out and we spend some money on something and, for, you know, for a short period of time it makes us feel great, you know, and then we get bored with it and, you know, it either sits in the cupboard or, you know, we discard it or whatever. But a lot of people do discard their objects because they're bored with it because of this thing called retail therapy. And I was thinking... Well, how can we give that same exchange, that same emotional exchange without having a product? And I was looking at the gift economy and things like that at the time in my research. And so I think, well, stories, you know, stories don't have any kind of, you know, object in, unless you're telling a story about an object, I guess, but they don't have an object involved in them. They're free. We can retell it to someone else. They can make us smile. They can make us cry. But, you know, they have that exchange like a trade it's a trade it's an exchange that we can do anyway it was really successful I had over 300 people in you know this is in Launceston which is you know a city of 70,000 when you sort of take it to the outer rim (laughs) you know people through in that week and lots and lots of people really loved it but I couldn't keep it going because I was you know a full-time academic and I just couldn't do that and do that shop so that was in um 2014 and then my life to more recently in 2019 18 19 my life sort of took another change and I left you left full-time academia and decided that this is what I wanted to do like was to actually get this back I was doing something else before then I was printing anyway so yeah I did (laughs) I did that before and then yeah then I decided to to get the bye-bye shop, but I wasn't sure then how to, I knew I couldn't do the bye-bye shop because that was free. Everything was free. There was no money. I needed, unfortunately, you know, living in the economy that we're living in, <laughs> you need to make make money. So, and I needed to, to do that. So, and then I was thinking about clothing, like it, rather than the, the bye-bye shop was sort of anything and everything. But clothing, I picked the redress hub could have been anything, as you pointed out before. You know, it could be furniture or it could be toys or, you know, electrical goods. The redress hub could have been any of those things. But I picked clothing mainly because clothing is something we all wear. So from the moment we're born to the moment we die, we're in clothes, unless we go skinny dipping or, you know, whatever. (laughs) So, you know, we need clothes. We all wear clothes. So it's something we're all familiar with and some, something we can all make a difference. 
So, and the best difference that we can make is to stop buying new clothes. <laughs> so it's also economically, you know, to the average person, it's also something that can be achieved by anyone. You don't need $20,000 to put a solar array on your house or whatever, you know, like so it's something that everyone can participate in at various levels. And the other major thing was that the clothing industry has such a huge impact on the environment. So, you know, as an industry, it accounts for, you know, 10% of global emissions. And it's the second biggest polluter in the world, you know, after the oil industry. So, you know, we don't see clothing in that way. We don't see clothing as this industry that has such a, a huge impact. Clothing seems so benign, you know, it's soft and it's warm and it's, you know, light and, you know, like it's it's not sort of something that's, you know, grubby and dirty and smelly and, you know, all of those sorts of things. So we don't associate the environmental impact of clothing, but at every stage of its life cycle, it has huge impacts. So that was the other thing was that, one, we can all make a difference and, two, that difference is going to make a big impact because the industry is so, you know, damaged in that way. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess there's a lot of people in the sustainability space who, as you you touched on so many themes that I think that are coming up at the moment in, in the architecture space as well as the sort of retail space where people are talking about, you know, trying to get the materials from as locally as possible, trying to use reused materials as much as possible, and then trying to make their building envelope operate as efficiently as possible so that then we don't have to rely on the biggest energy uses that we have, which is heating and cooling our home. How did that all sort of pair together with the results of of your research? And how do you now or how did you use in, in academia before you decided to, to go off and, and now work full-time in the redress shop? How did you sort of bring, bring all of that together so that through all the learnings that you did in retail, you produced this book, which was a really, really usable guideline in the architecture space? Yeah. So, I, yes, I haven't looked at the downloads of that or the views of that recently, but I know it got lots and lots of views and, and downloads when I when it first was sort of published. So I, I do hope that it's a resource that people are and can use. I guess for me my, more personally though, you know, the, the Redress Hub in itself has allowed me to really live the research that I've done and that was really, really important to me that it wasn't research that just kind of sat there and and didn't make a difference to me. And as a consequence, the Redress Hub is making a huge difference to the community here and something that I never saw. I never saw that coming. And I get so many comments and compliments, you know, either on social media or people coming into the Redress Hub and just saying, you're just doing such a wonderful thing for the community. We really want to support you and, you know, thank you so much for what you're doing. Like I had a woman come in the other day because we have part of what we do there is we hire ball gowns for $25. You can hire a ball gown. You just have to, just has to come back dry cleaned. 
And there's a bit of a story to the start of that, but I'll keep it short. So we got a donation of ball gowns that was probably about 25 of them. And so that sort of started it off. And when we started it off, other people were saying, I've got some ball gowns in my cupboard that have been sitting there. They were worn once. They're never going to be worn again. Can we please donate them to the Redress Hub? Because we know that you're going to, you know, hire them out to particularly the young girls. There are, there's, you know, that whole thing. Here they're called Leavers Balls. They have them in Year 10 and Year 12. And the gowns that they need, in advert commas, <laughs> to go to these, you know, they're hundreds of dollars, you know, to buy. And some families can't afford, a lot of families can't afford, you know, to do that. And they need two because they need one in year 10. They can't wear the same one again. So, you know, they need another one in year 12. And so that could be $500 to a family, you know, just on so the $25 means that it's still affordable to most people. Now, I know that's still going to exclude some families, but I hope that they can still come to us and we'll always work something out for them. But, you know, it's that kind of thing. And, and this woman came in with these ball gowns and some other beautiful clothing for us to have in the shop. And then she went away and she said, look, I've got this other piece. She said, I don't know that you'll be able to, you'll want it, but we don't know what to do with it. It's a wedding dress. And I said, look, let's have a look, you know. Anyway, so she came back with this beautiful old box and on the cover of the box was the name of the designer where it came from. It was Russell and Allen in Old Bond Street in London. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and inside you opened up the box and inside there was the tiara not it's not really because it's not diamantes but it was sort of silk flowers and and things tiara and the actual oh bouquet the bouquet yeah so the bouquet that was sitting on the top took that out and then the tissue paper underneath and then there was this silk dress flapper style so 1920s a <laughs> hundred year old dress all with the diamantes and things hand stitched onto it wow with the undergarment, with gold thread, you know, and this amazing veil made out of silk and gold thread. And this family, there's quite, I won't mention the name at the moment because they're wanting to remain anonymous, but the family that this uh, dress was made for is quite a prominent family in Tasmania. And they didn't know what to do with it. And so here we've been gifted this amazing, amazing piece of history, clothing, and I'm now obviously going to take this to the um, museum here and I'm hoping, I'm sure they will accept it as part of their collection. But, you know, and we did mention that to the woman when she came in, you know, we said, shouldn't you go to the museum? And she said, oh, I don't, don't think it's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this same company who made these dresses have, have actually got other dresses that are in the in the Victorian Albert in London. So, you know, wow. like so and she said to us, you know, like I said, oh, you know, we'd like to acknowledge you and she said, "No, no, we want to remain anonymous because you are just doing such giving such an amazing thing back to the community." So, it's that sort of thing that I never expected to get 
from what we're actually doing at the Redress Hub. And I think that's where we need to really change what we're doing as designers as well around sustainability. It's not just about the thing. It's actually about the experience, the the connections that, that are made. And as, you know, people come into the Redress Hub and they want to talk and they're curious, you know, like they, they haven't seen anything like this before because we're set up in a normal kind of shop space with the, you know, the full glazing and everything around the shop. But there are sewing machines in there and there are tables, but there are also clothes hanging up and there's, you know, there's people knitting in there and, you know, like what is this all, you know, people walk past, I can hear them and they go, oh, that's a sewing shop. No, it's not, (laughs) you know, and someone else will walk past and they'll say, oh, that's the secondhand clothing shop. No, it's not, you know, and then they come in after a while and they go, the, the first thing that they'll say is they'll go, what is this place? I'm really curious, you know, like I've walked past a couple of times and I'm just really curious about it. And that curiosity, that intrinsic value of curiosity is so important to change behaviour and any type of behaviour. But if we're looking at sustainability, it's a really important value to enable that permanent change of behaviour. We've too often looked at the extrinsic values of, you know, the carrot and stick. You know, if you if you do this, I'll give you a prize, and you know, it, but if you don't do this, then I'll slap you over the wrist, sort of thing. You know, and that has shown time and time again that that will change behaviour, but not over a longer period of time. But intrinsic values like curiosity do. So by slowing things down, allowing people that time, they will rethink those things. They will go, like with our secondhand clothing range, you can either swap it for $5 or you can buy it for what's on the ticket. So immediately people are going, oh, okay, so if I bring in a piece of clothing that I don't wear anymore and swap it for this thing that I know I will wear, and that that exchange is going to cost me $5 or I can buy it for $35. Well, mm, okay, $5 swap, that's, you know, that's a really good thing. I can swap over my whole wardrobe, you know, for under $100, you know. So it's those things that I think we need to think about how our spaces can allow that type of agency and to allow people to to think up new ways of trade and exchange and connection and collaboration and those sorts of things and and interior spaces too you know like you know uh, public spaces as well as private spaces that's fantastic yeah no I, I think that's a really nice yeah final thought i think is that yeah it's really important that we are constantly questioning and thinking about a lot of the structures and typologies that we use all the time like something like retail where it's an exchange of money for for goods but yeah a shop like the redress hub where you've basically rethought that process so that it, it has all of these great sustainability initiatives embedded in it yeah that can actually help foster great change across the rest of the community which is really fantastic so I guess for all of our architects who are listening, and we've got quite a big architect audience, <laughs> how do you think they could use your research on the projects that they're working on? If you wanted to give them a bit of advice on when to pick up your research for their <laughs> projects, what would you tell them? 
Well, with anything like this, it needs to start right at the start. So if you're working on something in that shopping scape, you know, industry, the conversations need to start right at the start. It's much too hard for for you to pick that up halfway through a project, for example. Like it, it really, because it's it's a changing paradigm. You're changing the way people are thinking about things. And if you were to, I mean, a single shop will have a very different take to, you know, a whole shopping centre. But when you have that conversation, so when we were looking for the space for the redress hub, for example, it wasn't about where to hang the stock. That was sort of fine because we knew we had the pro- we would have the product to sell in there. It was more about, well, we need the space for the tables for people to sit at to actually have the sewing machines at so that people can come in either for a set workshop or just come in and use the machine and sit there and repair something, you know, while the place is open. So the, what activities you actually want to have in there obviously informs the design of the space, whether that's a small space or a whole shopping centre. And when you're thinking about a whole shopping centre, then you're not only thinking about maybe the the individual shop spaces don't exist anymore, you know, like, you know, thinking you know, how, because all of these things work together as well. So why do you need them to be separate when they could actually be together and working together? And, you know, how could that actually be formed? And if you're thinking about like a circular economy, what does that actually need? Do you know, like, do you need places where people are making things and building things as well as selling things or where services, you know, enable you to to have things repaired or to repair them yourself or, you know, all of those things will be paramount to how you design the space. And there is an example in Sweden, I'm pretty sure it's Sweden, and they've got a, a shopping centre that's all based on recycling. Yeah, wow and reuse and repair and stuff. So that's a good one to look at as a case study. But, yeah, I'd say as early as possible and think big, you know. Mm, mm. (laughs) No, that's really exciting. I think the bigger the better when it comes to any of these centres where it's about connecting people with each other and, yeah, the actual circular life cycle of, of what we use every day. So, yeah, no, that was really fantastic. Thank you so much for um, sharing the amount of, of well, the huge journey that you've been through, Yeah, basically starting your career in sustainability, moving into academia, and now running the Redress Hub in Launceston. <laughs> it's such an inspiring story. And, yeah, I just hope that everything goes well with you in the future, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who work in the retail space in architecture who will be downloading your research very, very soon. And just to remind <laughs> people uh, of the name of that research, so it's called The Changing Paradigms of Contemporary Consumerism, Sustainability, Adaptation, and Spatial Tactics for Shopping Scapes. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kirsty Marte. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. It was a real delight. Thank you very much. No worries at all. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, academic Kirsty Marte, who is not a registered architect. 
thank you so much for sharing all of your stories about sustainability and consumerism and sharing insights about your PhD and the redress shop. We're looking forward to speaking with you again in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Daniel Moore. This content was brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.